Montebello Church Sermons. Greetings from the She Shed. I am very thankful to be able to worship with you today. Uh, be it over the interwebs. Um, I'm humbled to be able to uh, talk with you uh, kind of during such a tumultuous time in our history. We're in an unprecedented time uh, for our country and the world. Um, I don't know if you realize this. We're kind of neck deep in a pandemic, and uh, it's affecting our health and welfare, our ability to work and uh, even to socialize. Um, we're seeing uh, social and political upheaval like we've never really seen it, uh, along with kind of a complete polarization of our society, uh, something that really uh, wouldn't occur except for the Internet and social media. So it's kind of a unique thing, um, but it's uh, so polarizing to the point where um, you really can't go online and actually say anything without being attacked or shamed uh, by a conservative side or a progressive side or a Black Lives Matter side or a uh, non-Black Lives Matter side or or whatever. It's, it's kind of crazy town right now. And uh, unfortunately, um, uh, it's kind of filtering into the church as well, which is really kind of difficult to watch, at least from my, my uh, perspective, uh, because the, the church, above all things, um, really shouldn't be imitating the world. Rather, we should be imitating Christ and uh, reflecting Christ to the world. And so uh, the question, I think, is, is what do we do to counteract kind of some of the chaos that's going on right now? And uh, really, uh, one of the answers is, is there's really nothing we can do in our own strength. But if we're able to uh, recenter our vision um, and uh, what our purpose is, which is to reflect Jesus, we're actually able to uh, kind of shine a light on a path toward unity and peace. And um, the, the question, though, is kind of how do we do that? Um, for us to know what it is to reflect Jesus, both as individuals and as a church, we need to understand really what Jesus is like, uh, what he thought was important, what he wants for his people, and in essence, we need to seek the heart of Jesus. And uh, one of the best uh, places to start that is in um, the book of John, chapters 13 through 17, which is known as the Upper Room Discourse. And um, why is this a, uh, a really good place to start? Let me answer that. Um, this is Jesus's last interaction with his disciples before he goes to the cross. So the information that he wants to give his disciples before he goes to his death, this is his last opportunity to give them. Um, it begins with Jesus not talking or teaching, but washing his disciples' feet. And it ends with Jesus praying, not just for his disciples in the room, but for all his disciples through all history. And uh, we aren't able to go verse by verse through um, five chapters in John. That would take a while. Um, but I do want to emphasize four elements within the Upper Room Discourse that should help guide us toward an understanding of how all of us can reflect Jesus to a world that really, really needs it right now. And so I want us to focus on these four elements. 
um, what Jesus does for his disciples, which is in chapter 13, uh, what he commands his disciples, what he reveals to his disciples in chapters 14 through 16, and then how he prays for his disciples, which is in chapter 17, also known as the high priestly prayer. And so I want to start with um, the beginning, chapter 13, what Jesus does for his disciples. And so we'll start at verse 1, says this, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that his Father had given all things into his hands, uh, rose from supper, verse 4, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus here does for his disciples what is considered lowly servant work. It's not like... Um, he had to, you know, clean out the animal stall. But washing the disciples' feet was not a uh, task that a servant really was looking forward to. It was, it was demeaning. Um, it was needed, but it was it was for the lowliest of the low. But you see Jesus as the Son of God, and knowing most importantly that this is his last opportunity to do something great for his disciples. Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords, wanted to show his disciples how, how he was willing to serve them, how he was willing to love them. But in addition, he wanted to use the washing of, of the disciples' feet as an example, as a tone to set for how his followers should continue to live after he's gone. Um, he confirms this in verse 12 when he says, Do you understand what I've done for you? Uh, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of others, of one another. For I've given you an example that you should also, uh, that you should do just as I have done for you. In washing the disciples' feet, Jesus sets the tone as for his followers, that they should be servants for one another. But not just servants, servants who are willing to humble themselves and to meet needs for one another. If the Son of God can wash feet, his disciples have no excuse not to serve one another. Jesus isn't using this at, to set a rule that every disciple needs to wash other disciples' feet. Rather, he's using it as a principle to teach us, to teach his disciples, how we ought to serve one another just like him. Which leads us to the next element, which is what Jesus commands his disciples. He says this in verse 34, A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus refers to this as a new command, which means he is differentiating this command from the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with everything you have, heart, soul, strength, mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Why is he differentiating? What's the difference? The difference is in how we love and to whom. The great commandments, love the Lord your God, 
all your soul, strength, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself, those are coming internally. We are to love God with everything we have. We are to love our neighbors as if we were treating them like us. Um, but the new command, Jesus is saying, you need to love your, uh, your fellow disciples. You need to love one another in Jesus like Jesus. You need to love your neighbor, Joe Schmuckatelli, as if you were Jesus. That's how you are to love. Um, it's a new command, Jesus telling us to love brother and sister as if we were Jesus. Moreover, this is this love is primarily given to the followers of Jesus as a testimony of who he is. It's not that we shouldn't love the world, but rather the world sees Christ's love when we love one another. Let me reemphasize, the world sees who Jesus is by how we love one another. Our love for one another is proof of God's love for them. Okay, so if we are angry and judgmental, if we want to shame, if we want to call people out, if we want to gossip, if we want to do these things to our brothers and sisters in Christ, what is that telling the world? That it's telling the world that this is what Jesus is like. He's judgmental. He gossips. He calls people out. He uh, he's unforgiving. This, this, and this. But if we're compassionate and forgiving toward one another, serving each other, loving each other, it reveals Jesus's love to the world. And so we want to move on to the next element, which is what Jesus reveals to his disciples. There are a number of things that Jesus reveals in here. All of them are important. I can't uh, emphasize all of them. So I want to emphasize three that I believe reveal how both individually and corporately we can reflect Jesus to the world. And the first one is Jesus's promise that we will do his works and we will even surpass his works. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 14, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the father. Jesus is leaving the world. So he's empowering his, his disciples and tasking them with the job of revealing his goodness. How does he do that? Well, he does it through the Holy Spirit whom he refers to as the Spirit of Truth. Verse 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a teacher and a guide who directs and empowers us to walk in the commands of Jesus and thus allows us to accomplish greater works than Jesus. And it's through this Holy Spirit that we are able to understand and to live into the third point, which is in order for us to accomplish any of this, we have to abide in Jesus. Uh, John 15, 4 and 5 say this, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, 
you can do nothing. Notice the thinking here. The branch is an extension of the vine. It survives only as long as it's attached to the vine. It bears fruit only while drawing nutrients from the vine. We as disciples are healthy and productive only as long as we are abiding in Jesus, bearing with him, waiting on him, accepting him, living in him, conforming to him. Apart from this, we are useless. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. And so we've discussed what Jesus did for his, ex for his disciples, which is the example he set. Uh, we've discussed his commands to his disciples, which is what we are called to do, which is loving one another, and what he reveals to his disciples, how we are able to accomplish all of this. And so lastly, I want to talk through Jesus's prayer for his disciples. And I want to emphasize one main point. Above everything else, Jesus prayed for unity. Uh, John 17, 11 says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So this unity, it's not for unity's sake, but it's, and it's not just unity in um, belief. It's not just a unity in um, even action. It is unity like the Father and the Son have unity. It is deep. It goes down to the core. It is, um, it's as if they are functioning as one. That's the prayer that Jesus is making for us. And not just for his 12 disciples either. It is for everybody. Uh, verse 20 says this, I do not ask for these only, these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as the Father are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Okay, let's unpack that for a second. This unity will show the world who Jesus is. It's And it's not just that we are unified together, but we are unified in Christ so that the Father and Jesus are in us and we are in them. And it's for the purpose that the world knows that we were sent by him. I don't know if we actually unpack that. That's kind of deep. But we have to also be aware that this is a prayer because that could be a daunt. Is that a word? It can be daunting. It can be a daunting task to think about what we are called to and what we are not. And so we do have to remember that this is a prayer. Okay? Jesus is not commanding us to be unified. Instead, he's interceding for us to the Father and asking him to unify us. Jesus, is, Jesus knows that we are unable to do this on our own. Um, it's only by the will of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can accomplish this. And so how does this happen? Because, as I mentioned, if there's something that the church is not, it is not unified. Even our church, Montevillo Baptist, doesn't look like the Father in Jesus. 
We have all sorts of differing factions. Um, even if we don't want to admit it, we're separated by politi political views, by doctrine, by ministry practice, by age, by music preference, uh, by um, parenting style, by uh, preference in public school or private school or homeschool or morality or ethics. I could spout off a dozen more things, um, but we do have to remember there have been times in the church's history that they have been united like this, like Jesus and God, um, united together in Christ. Uh, we've seen it at Pentecost. We've seen it throughout the church's history through various revivals, um, but it's been a long time since we've seen it in America. So what needs to happen? Um, I don't have the, all the answers. Uh, I can only assume, I, you know, like I think for myself, I think that it, need, it needs to be collaborative. Uh, we need to be involved individually, but we also need to be uh, united corporately. And at the end of the day, uh, it's God who really needs to do this stuff. God needs to be involved with us both individually and corporately. Um, as individuals, we need to go back to the basics and we need to examine our hearts. Uh, are we judging others without looking at our own bias or our own sin or our own selfishness? Uh, in essence, are we looking at the speck in one another's eye without pulling the plank out of our own eye? Um, I do that all the time. Man, it is so easy in today's day and age to aggressively judge others. And it seems like it's easier even in the church to judge others. Um, looking at people and seeing that they're not measuring up. And it is really difficult to self-examine and to say, wow, I'm not measuring up. I'm being a jerk. I'm being selfish. I'm doing these things. We all fall into that. Um, or if not all of us, at least I fall into that. Um, are we worried about our own needs and our own needs and wants are we selfish or self-absorbs callous toward the needs of others are we failing to abide in Jesus man i got to tell you that's that's a struggle for me i don't know if it's a struggle for you man it's easy to feel like i have enough knowledge um or it's easy to focus on the knowledge uh, man, you can read your Bible every day of your life and not be close to Jesus. And I find myself all the time struggling with that. Man, it's easier for me to know about Jesus than to seek to know Jesus. You know why? Because when the further and the, the further I get into that rabbit hole, the further and further I go down, um, the more I have to give up myself the more I have to give up what I want, the more I have to give up uh, who I am, um, and the more I have to put on Jesus, and that is difficult. Um, but if we're struggling with our heart towards God, towards others, um, God calls us to repent. And it's not, God doesn't call us to shame. God doesn't even call us to guilt. 
He calls us to repent. So he's not saying, feel bad about yourself. He's saying, come know me. Um, so repentance is just turning toward Jesus, seeking forgiveness where necessary, asking God for the ability to love like Jesus, and then uh, looking for opportunities to show that love. For us corporately, we need to just seek Jesus above all. Uh, we need to take off uh, what political views we have, um, what, uh, you know, like social biases we have, whatever encumbers us, and we need to follow Jesus and uh, start loving one another. Um, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 sums it up best. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we have to remember that this is a process. We're not going to do it overnight, and we shouldn't feel guilty that we can't do it overnight. Repentance is a process. It's a walk. It is a sojourn with God. Um, obedience is a process. Learning, knowing, and walking in it. Uh, but above all, Jesus just wants us to know him, walk in his steps, trust in his strength, and as we do this, other things fall into place. As far as God's involvement, it's up to him when he wants to unite us. Um, but I can tell you typically that God works really well with humble people. And so if we think we know what to do, if we think we know how to do it, um, and we, we uh, function based on um, our own opinions, our own will, uh, God doesn't really work well with us. Um, but if we are able to humble ourselves, read, listen, pray, and ask God to reveal his goodness to us, man, that opens up a whole world of working with God that we probably wouldn't expect and we would probably delight in. Um, he works best with people who are with a contrite heart, willing to listen and to follow rather to, than to lead and go. Um, but I don't want to leave us without hope of what God can do. Um, because really, he is doing a lot, even among his church. Even though we can see the disunity within our church, God is still doing amazing things among his church, and he's seeking unity. Um, I want to give you a, a little bit of a story before I close. It, it's I'm just going to sum it up really good, really quick. But um, when we were uh, a few weeks ago, when we were at the um, I don't know the unsanctioned non Montebello family camp, I don't know if you'd call it that. Um, I had the privilege of being able to uh, talk just real briefly with Jeff and Diane Morris. And uh, if you don't know them, I encourage you to know them. They have a fantastic testimony. I am not going to do it service. And so I encourage you to uh, let them share uh, more from their heart. But 
like many of us, Jeff and Diane um, came from a uh, pretty conservative Christian background. Um, and so they, you know, like with everything happening between coronavirus and Black Lives Matter and just the protests and the riots, uh, it was very easy for them to build up presuppositions based on what they believe. Um, but they were listening to God and God was directing them not to, um, not to build presuppositions, but to just listen and to seek and to understand what was going on and to see if there are ways that they could bring Jesus into it. And uh, long story short, they started attending a uh, predominantly black church. And um, it's not meeting with very many people because you can't meet with very many people right now. But they were, but they've been able to go and to attend, and uh, they, you know, they've told me, man, they have been humbled and taken aback um, by what they presumed was going on and what is really going on, and their hearts have been broken, and it's. Uh, it's, you know, you, you don't really say hearts are broken and then say, wow, that's encouraging. But it really is to see people who probably have a same kind of philosophy about life that I have, but to go in and say and to see them come out humbled and say, we just didn't know. We were just ignorant about what was going on and to see their hearts tenderized by God and, um, you know, they've taken this baby step toward uh, unity and it didn't come from anything they thought they knew. They just wanted to go and they just wanted to understand. And so they now are beginning to grow in this perspective. And and while God is doing a work in their heart, God is also bringing uh, unity which between... Um, ethnicities between um, uh, between uh, fellow churches uh, between um, all sorts of people who might otherwise not even be in the same social circles as one another because of what God is what God wants for us which is to be one in Christ and it's an awesome thing to hear I encourage you to talk with them, but I'm just sharing it briefly so you can be encouraged to be thinking and praying and ask God how uh, how you can enter into this, to be an, ag an agent for unity within the church. How can you abide in Jesus, walk in his ways, um, bring unity within the church, so that the world is able to step back and say, oh, this is what, it, what God's love is like. Oh, this is what it looks like to follow God. These are the things that we are called to. These are the things that we need to be praying and striving for. And, uh, and so with that said, I, I will shut up. I will just pray for us. And um, may God uh, transform our hearts and uh, bring us to his unity through his son. Let's pray. Father, I just, I lift your name on high. Thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And Lord, I just pray that you tenderize our hearts. 
allow us to take our eyes off of the social turmoil, the strife, the chaos that's happening in our world, to take it, to take our eyes off ourselves and where we're struggling or hurting, and to put our eyes on your Son, on Jesus. May we walk in his steps, may we abide in him through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may be united together in your love, that we can love one another with the love of Jesus in order for the world to see your goodness and your faithfulness and your love for them. That you may be glorified in us and through us, not in our own strength, but in the power of the blood of Jesus for your honor and for your glory. And I pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you. Montebello Church Sermons.